Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the State of Venezuela podcast. Earlier in the series, we've spoken about the saving grace that is cryptocurrency in Venezuela. It has been used for remittances and as a way to skirt and evade controlling measures from the Maduro dictatorship that have come at the cost of the remittances that Venezuelans are trying to use to survive. In the last episode, we spoke about different initiatives that exist in Venezuela at the moment to try and allow Venezuelans to send money to Venezuelans. From outside, of course. Of the 5 million Venezuelans that have left over the past five years or so, many try and send remittances back to Venezuela. At least 35% of the country relies on remittances. It is the single greatest export outside of oil and gas that serves as a source of income for the country. And yet it is entirely in the hands of the government. I should say the regime. One of the most exciting initiatives that I've come across that is looking to counteract these encroaching dystopian measures by the Maduro regime to take these life-saving graces away from the Venezuelan people is a new startup called Yaquera, which is looking to reimagine peer-to-peer aid for Venezuelans. It's a very, very exciting initiative that I'm happy to present to you all today. With me, I have on the podcast three founding members of Yaquera, Aaron Lambert, Raul Romero, and Daniel Santos. They're going to explain to you how Yaquera works and why this could really be a game changer for the future of Venezuela, not just in terms of sending remittances, but how we reimagine money in the country. So Raul, Aaron, Daniel, welcome to the State of Venezuela podcast, guys. I'm very happy to have you on. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much, Rafael. Great to be here. Really appreciate it, man. Thank you. Absolutely. Likewise, gentlemen. So I want to get started with you, Raul, because you and I actually happened to know each other before coming across this project. You and I met in 2017 at a conference that we haven't really spoken about in this podcast called Plan País. Any attendees from Plan País listening, I want to give you guys a shout out. Plan País, long story short, a conference for young Venezuelan professionals and students looking to get together to come up with solutions for the myriad of problems that are plaguing the country currently. You and I met in 2017, and since then, we've sort of kept in touch. But I really want to know, I want to start with you in terms of your background so that you can share how you first got to the United States from Venezuela, because your, your story is fascinating. And then I want to touch a little bit on how you got inspired to start this foundation, Yaquera. Thank you so much, Rafael. And well, my story of how I ended up here in the U.S. is a little bit complicated. Um, when I was in my senior year of high school, I was working on a project and um, I was visiting high schools. I was working in the youth municipal government, which was a project that we were aiming to build in Baruta to give participation to young Venezuelan students. And suddenly uh, in one of those schools, which is actually Daniel's school, uh, one of the teachers talked to me and, 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 and told me that I should apply to this program of international high schools. It's called UWC in Venezuela, Sabe Mundo. 
And I applied alongside 500 Venezuelans, and I was one of the nine people who were chosen to go abroad to study two extra years of high school um, alongside an international community of, of, of international students. So after I was chosen, I had a 75% scholarship, and I had to fundraise in order to be able to attend a high school here in the United States. So alongside my family and our in our cheese shop, we started giving people letters. And we started contacting people and the Alumni Association helped us. And we were able to fundraise $21,000 that we needed. Um, so I was able to end up here in the U.S. And I attended UWC for a couple of years. And after that, after my graduation, I enrolled in Kenyon College, which is a liberal arts in Ohio. And I've been here um, for two years already. Um, I'm a junior now, international studies major. And really, uh, I'm very appreciative of the opportunities I've had here. Yaqueda emerged um, last summer. Um, I had the opportunity to attend a Middlebury summer program focused on entrepreneurship um, and business uh, called Midcore. And I was in California surrounded by a lot of other students who had, you know, projects and ideas how to, you know, how to make the world a better place. And um, I came up with the idea of Yaqueda because of the pain of the people that I've seen from Venezuela for them, the pain of my family and the things that they've had to go through. Um, when I returned to Venezuela, and that was the last time I was there in 2018, I was taking the elevator to to go onto the apartment. And the first thing that this person said, that that one of my neighbors said, um, I, I said Merry Christmas. I said Merry Christmas to her with a you know the typical enjoyment and, and happiness that Venezuelans used to have. And she said that there was nothing to celebrate. Mm. Um, that there was nothing to celebrate in the country, but that she saw me and she was happy for me because I had gained weight. So those freshman 15 that I had put on at Kenyon now represented a symbol of status, a symbol of wealth. It meant that I was well enough to be fed three times a day. That's a memory that's joined me and that's haunted me ever since. And this is in some way a way to contribute, to give back to the country. And I'm very glad that there's a big team alongside me and, and a big team that has been building this dream um, of making Yaqueda a reality, making Yaqueda a way to give people they they deserve. Yeah, wow, that's incredible, Raul. And I think as uh, as, as heartbreaking as that sounds, man, I, I listened to the, the Freshman 15 and it has like almost like an inverse relationship with the 15, well, plus 15 pounds that are lost by Venezuelans on average per year. It's 25 pounds that Venezuelans lose. So when you put that in perspective with the 15 pounds that are gained by freshmen, it's, um, you know, it's not an apples to apples comparison, but it, it really puts into perspective what weight fluctuation is like in a country like ours where food scarcity is quickly converting itself into a famine. I want to go next with uh, with you, Daniel, because you also came from Venezuela, right? If I'm not mistaken, from Caracas. Yes, that's correct. Caracas, born and raised. <laughs> nice. So uh, tell me, Daniel, how did you get to the United States and how did you end up uh, partnering or collaborating with this project? Yeah, so funny enough, uh, but I guess at the same time, it makes sense. Uh, I applied to the same program as Raul. I was also participating in the selection process for UWC in Venezuela called Avemundo. Um, Raul and I applied a year together. Raul got in, but I was a year younger. I didn't get in that time. I had another chance to apply. And then I left for two years in a school very similar to the one that Raul attended. While Raul was here in the United States, uh, I went to the school in Canada. 
and you know it was an interesting experience because both the start and the end of my two-year experience in Canada uh, were marked by political unrest in Venezuela. I was literally told on a Sunday that I had been selected to attend the UWC school in Canada. And then on Monday, protests erupted during the 2017 round of protests nationwide. So I literally had no time to settle into the idea of that I was going to leave the country uh, because right after that, it was three to four continuous day after day, uh, fighting in the streets, marching, being involved knowing about people who got hurt, knowing about people who got arrested, uh, getting used to the smell of tear gas in my room, in my house, wherever I go. And so that's that's the last image of Venezuela I had, a country in turmoil. And then, you know, it was it, it, it is interesting to, to leave the country because especially for many young Venezuelans that I know, um, something always sticks back home. Someone, something always stays. I feel this personally, but many others have a sense of belonging to the country and wish to contribute back in any way that's possible. Raul and I, we were friends from back home. I think, Raul, it's been already five years, <laughs> which is crazy that we've been friends and that we've known each other for. And um, back in January, before everything happened with the pandemic, Raul got in touch with me and he said, hey, I have this project going on. Um, I need like someone that I, you know, I can trust, someone that I've worked with before. And especially someone that understands Venezuela, someone that understands where we're coming from, what's going on in the country. Would you like to come on board with me? And so, of course, I was going to say yes. He pitched the idea to me in less than, you know, one minute and I was completely sold. And since then, we've never looked back. And, you know, this is probably one of the most exciting projects that I've had in all of my life. I'm really, really excited, passionate and committed to what we're doing here at Yaquera. That's awesome, Daniel. That's really, really, really cool. Um, I can't wait to actually talk more about the substance of this project. But before we get started, I also want to talk to a third member of the team that we have here in the podcast today, uh, Aaron. What's cool about you, Aaron, is you're not Venezuelan, but you're involved in this. So first and foremost, as a Venezuelan, I'm sure other Venezuelans have told you this, but for us, anytime that they're non-Venezuelans that get involved to some degree in trying to help find solutions for the country. It, uh, there, there really aren't any words to describe the sort of gratitude that we feel because it, it can be, I'm sure that Raul and Daniel can attest to this, but to some degree, sometimes it could feel almost isolating. Like, we, like we're alone in this struggle and knowing that we have people from all walks of life, from different parts of the world that are um, equally looking to fight for Venezuelans' restoration of democracy so that we can, as a people, live with some dignity and not being from that country. That's, uh, that's awesome, man. So first and foremost, I want to thank you for that. And secondly, um, I want to talk about your CFO role with Yaquera. So tell me how it is that you got involved with this project. Right. Well, I really appreciate you saying that, man. Um, that was, that was, yeah, it was great. Uh, thank you very much. Um, you know, I, I think it's important to know that, um, you know, Venezuelan people are, are not alone, um, you know, in our fundraising stuff so far, I think that's been pretty apparent that people are really putting their money where their mouth is to, to support that cause. Um, and like you said, to try to bring, bring some dignity to that situation. Um, I met Raul in my first year at Kenyon. We both, uh, you know, attend, attend college together just through some, some mutual acquaintances. Um, and he had sent out uh, an email to our just kind of all uh, email chain, just on information 
transmission and things like that of events happening on campus that um, sort of roughly described um, some sort of initiative that was going to go towards helping Venezuela. Um, I'm also, like you said, in uh, international relations and studies at, at Kenyon, um, my specialties in, in Latin America. Um, and it seemed like a really interesting project. I had known Raul before that. Um, and so I, it, it was interesting. I actually almost didn't go to the meeting. I, I had a, another obligation that I was, you know, considering going to instead, and, and I just didn't really have a lot of time for it. But I ended up getting in touch with him, and um, he and I had this great meeting in, in the bookstore, and um, you know, he explained all of it to me, and, and I've been uh, really, really, you know, enamored with the idea ever since. I really believe in it. I think it has the opportunity to uh, to do a lot of good. So, um, you know, just since uh, since that time, obviously. We've gone home from from the pandemic. There's been a lot of other things going on, um, but you know it's given us a lot of time to to focus on this and uh, and get it off the ground. So that's been really a, a good opportunity for us. That's awesome. I actually want to touch on the pandemic itself. So, guys, as you know, remittances were already plunging because of the lack of funds at the beginning of this pandemic, and as the crisis has deepened in Latin America, where the vast majority of Venezuelan refugees find themselves, it has become worse and worse. So remittances are plunging right now. In fact, there was a uh, there was a study that came out by the uh, Inter-American Dialogue that found that um, basically remittance flows are reaching about 2 million people, which equates to more than 35% of the country's households. And that puts a sizable portion of the country at risk especially for older Venezuelans who rely on, say, $10 a month in remittances, and those dollars might not arrive to them in order to cover for basic necessities like food, medicinal supplies. So it seems like you guys have identified a problem that is in urgent need of fixing. So I leave this up to to anyone who wants to answer this, but uh, talk to me a little bit about how you identified the need for addressing the lapse in um, remittance services in Venezuela. Raul, I'll start with you. Um, in this case, what, what we're addressing is also the lack of humanitarian aid. Uh, we believe that there's a great need in Venezuela. And as you said, um, the data proves it. But we also have um, an innovation and we have a capacity to, to deliver money directly into the hands of the Venezuelan people. Um, RTM is very well known and it's being currently used by the Venezuelan interim government to deliver money mm -hmm. through peer-to-peer -peer transactions into the hands of healthcare workers in Venezuela. Before that even started, before that um, came into fruition, we were thinking, you know, that we could use and we partnered with RTM so that we could use peer-to-peer -peer transactions to deliver money and humanitarian aid directly into the hands of Venezuelan people, into their Venezuelan bank accounts through these peer-to-peer -peer transactions. And what I think is, is very interesting as well is that we are reimagining the way that aid and humanitarian aid can be delivered and the way that aid is conceptualized. We're not thinking about a kilo of harina pan. We're not thinking about you know a, a, very, a very fixed object, but we're thinking about how we can overcome those regulations, how we can overcome those blockades in the bridge of Tienditas in the border between Venezuela and Colombia that impeded aid delivery in February of last year. We're thinking about ways in which we can actually support directly people and they can tell their stories and they can actually use the money that they'll receive through Yaqueda to purchase the items that they, they deserve in the areas of food, education, healthcare, and small businesses. So we're completely reconceptualizing this and we're giving the people an opportunity to tell their own stories and for foreign audiences 
to hear those stories, to read those stories, and to contribute directly into the cause that they um, they want to support. That's great. And I think some of those stories need to be highlighted. There was one actually in your Medium article or the article that is in Yaquera's Medium the page basically that you guys have on um that you guys have on medium and some of the stories like that of vladimir the moto taxista who lost 24 pounds on average since 2016 also suffering along with the 90 percent that are living below the poverty line with an average monthly income of less than three dollars and not just people like him but people all throughout the country that like you say need their stories to be heard because life in Venezuela today, it's about as bad as it can get. So really harping on this idea of humanitarian aid and providing as much financial access to these uh, these individuals who don't have resources. Uh, talk to me if you could about maybe some of the story, the other stories that you have been told and that you know about that specifically detail what the situation with inflation is like where people have salaries that are like part bolivares and part us dollars but the salary for bolivares for example right now probably isn't enough to buy i don't know a couple of pounds of grounded meat at most right daniel would you like to answer that question sure i think um venezuela has been marked by distortions and you know if we talked about the situation a few years ago uh we would see that we basically had two Venezuelas, the Venezuela that could earn income and save its income in foreign currency, in U.S. dollars or in any other foreign currency. And therefore, they could protect themselves against inflation, against the loss of value in the national currency. And then you had the overwhelming majority of Venezuelans who did not have access to foreign currency, foreign markets, and therefore they were faced with the unavoidable uh, fate of losing the value of their earnings, of losing the value of their income. But eventually that string could be pulled so much. And what we have seen in these recent years is a virtual uh, dollarization of the country where most of people, most of the transactions are being executed and are being carried out in US dollars. Most recently, and this is, in my opinion, one of the most ironic things, Venezuela has been experiencing an extreme shortage of gasoline of gas for, for cars and for vehicles, which is ridiculous considering Venezuela's, not only its place in the oil markets in the world, but also its history of uh, being a major producer in the world. And the fact that you have lines stretching miles and miles in gas stops to get just to fill out the tank is ridiculous. But even more so is the fact that so many of these transactions are being carried out in U.S. dollars and other types of foreign currency. And it really depends. It's interesting. In the United, in Caracas, in the capital, you see this being done in foreign currency. But then you go to states or regions near the border with Colombia and they're using Colombian pesos instead. Or you go to the Guyana region and they're doing the same in gold because of the huge illegal mining industry that is developing there. So what we really see is a, is a distortion of people and people trying to brace to whatever they can so that their little income they've earned and the little value that they've earned in these past few years is not lost to hyperinflation and to a completely chaotic economy and a completely chaotic national life. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about 
the role of the regime in all of this because it seems like they have not helped at all. And specifically when it comes to the um, to the role of remittances, because they've made it darn near impossible to be able to send money to Venezuela. So if one of you could, could you talk to us about the government regulations in Venezuela that have made it so hard to send money there? Yeah, initially there was it was almost illegal um, to to transact and to to exchange currency. Even our partner um, AirTM, um, some of its employees had to flee Venezuela because they weren't allowed to transact. And 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 when AirTM first took off, they started persecuting um, the workers from AirTM that were um, finding a way to provide people um, with a pathway in which they could save money in U.S. dollars and and exchange money. Right now, there are less regulations um, for people to send remittances and support directly. But there are a lot of regulations related to aid and the way um, aid can be sent to Venezuela. Um, just at the beginning, when when um, the Red Cross starting delivering aid in Venezuela and the limited capacity that they've had and the limited role that they've been allowed to have in Venezuela, they face threats from paramilitary groups. Um, they face a lot of threats and a lot of persecution from the government. So at this point, even the efforts of international organizations that are trying to bring support directly into the Venezuelan people are being halted or be, are being impeded by the regime. But, but we do believe that through peer-to-peer transactions, through innovation, through technological innovation, we can actually find a way around it. So people receive direct support that best meet their, meets their needs. Yes, I want to talk about this option to try and work with Yaquera, this platform that you guys have created. So talk to me a little bit about the foundation, starting with the name. I've, I've been very, very curious. Where does the name come from? That's on your own. <laughs> the name um, comes from the indigenous language, Warao. Yaquera means gratitude. Um, one of our partners on the ground had worked a lot with the Warao community and in some ways, they, they express gratitude to him. And since then, you know, we, we thought that it was a really good way in which we could empower Venezuelan voices and, and find a way in which we could name the project that better represent what we want to do. What we want to do is to deliver support, support directly and to express the gratitude of Venezuelan people to a world that wants to support Venezuelans. And Warao, of course, is uh, it's an indigenous people that is in Venezuela, correct? That's it. Yes, yeah. yes. So... From a practical standpoint, try and walk me through the steps if you could. I was looking at um, at a post that you guys had made on your Twitter platform, which I will have, of course, as a part of the links in the description for this episode. And the way that you explain it, first of all, is great for those who don't really understand how uh, the blockchain process through which cryptocurrency moves, you guys put it in a very, very palatable format, we can say. But in terms of how it works, um, let's go with the example of Garcia in Caracas, right? It says, Garcia is a Venezuelan who lives in Caracas and needs relatively expensive medicine for his daughter. To pay for the prescription, he sets up a campaign with Yaquera. So walk me through the next steps of what happens from there. I think you got this, Aaron. Right. So, um, well, yeah, once Garcia has, has established his, his campaign, um, he already is going to have an RTM account. Um, so one of the ways that we're, we're working with that is to, you know, enable people to, to be able to use that platform. And, you know, a lot of this is, is really about integrating that uh, platform with, with our, our crowdfunding network. Um, so once he has, has set up this campaign, um, he then starts to work on ways to promote it, um, which, you know, we'll do a lot of that with, you know, our own advertising and things like that on, on the website. 
Um, over time, he's going to receive donations for uh, for his campaign. Um, one of the really good things about RTM is that those donations can come in a variety of different currencies. Um, they can be exchanged, you know, from people all over the world, you know, depending on how they want to donate. Um, over time, he's going to develop some money that is, you know, sent to his RTM account and that he has access to. Um, and then, as you know, I've, you know, from working with RTM a little bit and, and learning a little bit about it, uh, once he has, you know, what he needs, he's able to withdraw that in the way that is most convenient for him. So he can take that out in cash. He can use that that network that exists in Venezuela already. Uh, he can have it transferred to a bank account. He can take it in gift cards. He can leave it in unconverted cryptocurrency. Uh, whatever suits his needs best, uh, that's, you know, what he has access to. Um, and hopefully he has, you know, the, the best experience possible through, uh, through our platform. Okay. Yeah, that seems a lot. A lot easier than maybe some of the processes that people have to use right now with things like MoneyGram, which might be slower, or trying to send money through black market rates, which are almost deceiving in a certain way. Um, tell me if you could, maybe some of the initial challenges that come with using a platform like AirTM. One of the ones that I see initially is the learning curve. So I don't know how, for example, interim president Waido has done to successfully try and navigate or to jump over some of the hurdles that the regime has placed on AirTM itself. Because as you guys know, AirTM has been banned by the regime because you know we're talking about some of the most morally dubious people on planet Earth to cancel a platform dedicated to providing monetary aid, financial aid for uh, heroes on the, on the front line. So talk to me about maybe some of the challenges that you guys have identified, like having these platforms like AirTM readily available to Venezuelans. And what steps are you guys looking to take to overcome them? One of the challenges that we've identified is the fact that right now, um, when President Guaido started his healthcare program, healthcare transfers, uh, the platform was blocked in Venezuela. So as of now, it, there's an intermittent access to AirTM without using a, a VPN. Um, at the moment, we'll have a section um, in our website explaining how to use VPNs. Uh, and the good thing is that we've seen international solidarity from um, service providers like TunnelBear that are very, very well known, uh, like others that have extended their premium, premium services to Venezuelans. Uh, the idea is that we can assist Venezuelans in creating a VPN, but of course, and in using VPNs to to access RTM, but of course, this this adds a set of complications that we're we're looking to address towards the future. But certainly, people can still use um, RTM in Venezuela, and they've been able to circ circumvent these regulations through the simple use of a of a VPN, for instance. It's also really important on our end not to run afoul necessarily of, of certain sanction requirements um, in the United States as well for, for sending money to people in Venezuela. So we have to be very careful in that regard to, to make sure we're compliant with, with those as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The other component to the approach that I read in your Medium article is this unique multi-step anti-fraud approach that you guys are going to be using to evaluate the content of the social media accounts and communications with the applicants themselves. Um, as you guys know, there's like a massive disinformation apparatus that is uh, actively maintained by the Maduro dictatorship to deceive Venezuelans on whether or not VPNs exist, on whether or not AirTM is feasible, on whether or not why they'll even try to send those $300 hazard paychecks to healthcare workers. And another thing that I noticed in um, as a part of that is the corroboration of Venezuelan ID information. So Explain to me, if you could, how your decentralized approach is going to be different 
from the centralized approach of Venezuelans having to use benefits that also require turning in information to use services like the Homeland Card, the Carne de la Patria, which unfortunately requires a submission of information that includes knowing where you live, who you live with, what you eat, what political party you're affiliated with, if you use your own car, if you used public transportation, and now at this point, if you have COVID-19 or not. Yeah, so checking the security and verifying every campaign is something that most fundraising, traditional fundraising platforms like GoFundMe usually do. And it's to comply you know, with financial security and information security. But we noticed pretty early on that this actually represented a barrier to entry for most Venezuelans because the kind of information clearance that most traditional platforms require are things like a United States home address, a United States social security number, a United States bank account that is certified by financial markets. And so most Venezuelans who are in more in its utmost humanitarian need don't have access to any of these clearance certification items like a bank account or a social security number in the US. Right. And at the same time, we recognized that we needed to confirm the how true were any of the campaigns being created in our platform. And so we devised a peer-to-peer system that is pretty simple and it consists in the fact that to create your own campaign, you need to review other participants' campaigns. And so one of the processes mm-hmm. in checking in and getting your fundraiser up to speed is that you will be redirected to other people's campaigns and you will check mark that that campaign seems legitimate and that it has a clear to go from you as a as another fundraiser and that is one of the steps you take in order to use our platform and we hope that it will be self-serving and it will enhance not only security clearances but at the same time lowering the barriers of entry for venezuelans into philanthropy and donation markets. There's something simple as well. The fact that we're checking social media and we're making sure that there's a Facebook account that has been created by a certain amount of time in some ways allows us to know that this person's identity matches with what we have in their Venezuelan ID and also hasn't been created specifically for the purpose of creating a campaign in Yaqueda, right? So in some ways, that's adding mm-hmm. an additional an additional vetting layer um, in which we can determine whether people's identities are real and, and that they're not creating an account or an identity specifically for the purpose of fundraising. Okay. And tell me about some of the first steps that you guys are going to take in terms of real-world implementation. What plans do you have to create a sandbox of sorts through which you can experiment to see this platform work in real time in Venezuela? Daniel? Yeah. Um, so we're planning on doing a pilot project and, you know, Raul has mentioned this and it's become a motto of our team to some extent, which is before we go big, we got to go small and we're going to prove the, the, the true impact that this platform can have. So we've partnered with Nutriendo El Futuro, which is an NGO working at the El Calvario community in El Atillo. And Nutriendo El Futuro is an NGO that does all kinds of uh, community engagement and community work including a social diner for people and children who cannot feed themselves three times a day. Um, and basically, we're going to, collaborating with them, we're going to identify a key families and individuals in the community who will set up a specific number of campaigns and 
they will be like our first trial at the use of the platform. Initially, we thought we could plan to go to Venezuela uh, and launch this pilot project on the ground. But of course, the rise of COVID-19 at the bit earlier in the year uh, changed those circumstances. So now we're strongly relying on our on-the-ground partners, but we aim to have developed 15 campaigns in December and run a first pilot with it. And after that, you know, monitor the development of the campaigns and, and evaluate the impact that this can truly have in a specific community. El Atillo is around the Caracas area, right? Correct. Okay. Um, do you guys have any plans on expanding beyond Caracas in places like, for, and you know, me, I'm being very uh, preferential here because of my uh, Zulian heritage, but any plans on having this expand to, for example, Zulia and Maracaibo in particular anytime soon? I think, yeah. I think our, our dream scenario and our ideal scenario, but at the same time, our goal scenario is that this platform gains traction on its own. And we hope to reach a point where uh, we're just providing a service and Venezuelans from all walks of life who are in humanitarian need all across the country access our platform and use it. But until we gain that synergy, uh, that momentum, that traction, uh, we need to keep developing pilot projects. We will evaluate, you know, as we move on, we really are excited about seeing what's the multiplier of our impact in this community. And I think that could gain a lot of attention and open new opportunities down the line. Well, if I could add a little bit, um, one of the important factors of what we're doing in December and, and how we're working with people is the fact that we're, um, we're going to have these four different categories and we can measure the indicators of each one of these. One of the ones that, that, that I think makes me really excited is also the opportunity to support small business. So oh. the mototaxista that needs um, another tire, the mototaxista that needs another thing for his for his moto for his motorcycle or um, a woman with an abasto that really needs to buy uh, a certain specific supply to be able to continue working and, and to better uh, improve her operations so in some ways like there are different factors there are different ways in which we're going to be contributing and we're also going to be measuring the ways in which we're um, impacting the community the most so that's something that we're really excited about and as, as daniel said we're looking to expand. We're looking to create this event for Venezuelans on the ground and maybe in the future towards Venezuelan refugees uh, abroad in South America. But first, we have to focus on the communities. We have to focus in organizations that are already doing work on the ground so we can uh, rely on their work to create campaigns and to support communities directly, and which they can also provide feedback as to how the platform is working and how it is um, being accessible for, for Venezuelan people on the ground. Right. I think most of all, it's important for us to release something that is, you know, effective and, and works properly, but also is, is safe to use, right? I mean, we don't want to put anybody in, in a situation that, that you know, is, is dangerous to use or is not working for them. Um, and, and in the short run, that's going to require some testing to make sure that, that, uh, that that's up to speed. Right. Absolutely. And um, tell me how this is going to be done in tandem with AirTM and their efforts in Venezuela? Or I guess I should rephrase that as how did you guys get in touch with each other? Because that's uh, that's a very powerful partner to have if it has the backing of the interim government. Those guys are awesome, man. They were, uh, we, we had reached out to them um, pretty early on in, in some of the stuff that we were trying to build. I mean, once we kind of got some of our, our tech design stuff squared away, um, you know, we reached out to their, uh, their head of partnerships, Eduardo, who has been just great to work with. Um, 
And yeah, no, they've they've been incredibly supportive of what we're doing. They've given us um, access to their uh, their API, uh, which is something that we can integrate into the uh, into the web platform as we go forward. Um, you mentioned earlier the idea of, of the sandbox. Um, they've they've given us basically dummy accounts where we can uh, transfer money between uh, between essentially fake ARTM accounts um, and and test that platform to you know make sure that it's it's working. Uh, when when we're using the the donation system, um, you know they've just given us great support. So um, yeah, no, they we we kind of were expecting a little bit more to have to do with that, and they've been uh, just incredibly supportive and, and really easy to work with. That's great. That's really really great. That gives you guys definitely a head start among maybe some of these other initiatives. That you know at the end of the day, it's definitely not a competition because we're all aiming towards the same goal, which is providing financial autonomy at the end of the day for Venezuelans that severely lack it. The the sooner we can get these ideas off the ground, up and running, the better. And that brings me to my next question. When it comes to actually supporting this particular project and getting it off the ground, what are you guys doing to um, get the word out there, you know, apart from being on this podcast? Well, I think we're all grateful <laughs> to be in, the po- in this podcast, first of all. Absolutely. Um, and I think we wanted to, the same idea, right? Go small and then build up from a solid base. So, our, you know, as we first launched our campaign, our initial approach was let's reach out to our friends here in the United States. Let's reach out to our network of people. Let's reach out to our immediate communities of people who are able to donate and interested in donating. Um, we're doing an initial fundraiser in order to to get the platform going and get to that uh, initial pilot project. And you know, I think we are reaching a point where we've we're, we're coming to the end of this first phase of gaining as much support from our immediate communities. And after that, we're going to start an outreach process to to the media mainly and to other forms of communication. And I think I can be fairly confident say that this is our first outreach. And so we're really happy to, I don't want to, I guess I want to say the exclusive here, <laughs> the first chance communicating with people in, in, in media channels. And I think from here is just spread the word as much as we can in every single outlet, in every single language that we can speak and get the word going. We're also looking at spending a, a good amount of that initial fundraising budget on um, just fundraising on, on Instagram and Facebook as well. You know, one of the things that we've really concentrated on is, you know, making sure that we're going to have people available to donate to these campaigns once they become available in, in the trial. And then, you know, eventually on, on the on the platform when it is in more of a finished form. Um, but, you know, it's, it's important that we have that pool of people that are available to the applicants on the platform to, to receive those donations. Um, and so a pretty good amount of the money that we're fundraising right now is going to be going towards uh, towards advertisement to make sure that those people are available uh, once these campaigns are uh, are up and running. Also, adding on to that, um, part of what we're fundraising for is that we're going to give support directly to the initial campaigns that, that we'll be creating with Nutriendo el Futuro. So those families are going to have uh, an insured donation uh, from us, $20 each family campaign and $75 each one of those community projects. And then there's going to be a certain amount of matchable funds available that is an incentive both both for them um, to fundraise and from the donor standpoint that they're making sure that their donations will be matched um, in this community trial. So um, we're also incentivizing that and a big chunk of what we're um, fundraising is also going to go directly into campaigns. That's awesome. That's really, really good. I'm glad to hear that you guys are really um, going full steam ahead amidst uh, really a global standstill. And I really want to point something out that Raul had mentioned earlier, 
in terms of the donations that I really hope are the fruition of a successful campaign and a successful experiment in, in December. Because even though it's $20, you guys can back me up on this for sure. $20 in Venezuela goes a very long way. Right now, about 70% of older Venezuelans rely on the support of family members for basic needs that sometimes only amounts to $10 a month. And $10 a month that's not enough to cover the cost of his multiple or their multiple medications for things like hypertension, poor blood circulation, or even COVID. So we're, we're now in a situation where hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans, older ones, where if COVID doesn't kill them, then the economy might. And as grim as that sounds, it's just the reality of the situation in the country. So the more exposure that that an organization, that a platform like Yaquera gets, the better and the quicker we can see a positive future for those who right now are just living in so much despair. So with that, I just have a couple more questions. If people do want to donate, I'm gonna, I want to throw some donation links onto the description of this episode. What are the platforms that you guys are using to help raise money? I know uh, GoFundMe is a big one, right? Yes, that that is our that is our main platform right now for uh, receiving donations. That's where that's where we're trying to uh, direct everybody who would like to donate to the campaign. Uh, we'd like to send them there. Um, you can also certainly engage with us on our Instagram account right now. is is very active. Um, it's Dakara underscore ve. Um, but yeah, so we're we're trying to direct most of that fundraising effort toward. Um, you know, toward that GoFundMe or again, you know, to any of our members and, and we can move that, uh, move that along as well. Yeah, we're going to have uh, next Thursday. So Thursday, the 8th, October the 8th, we're going to have a webinar um, in which we're going to talk a little bit more about Yaqueda and we're going to make this um, available for anyone to access. Um, we're focusing a lot of communities will be, will be um, creating an event bride so that people can reserve their tickets and, and attend the webinar. But it's basically for us to be able to to have an opportunity to talk to people about the initiative and to allow them to ask any questions that they might have. Uh, so I think this this is going to be an opportunity for them to reach out to us. More information will be coming soon, uh, but we hope we can uh, we can have this event ready on, on the 8th um, so we can talk a little bit more about who we are, what we want to do, and for those owners to ask us questions. So far, we are very, very grateful for the support we've gotten. Um, in these couple of weeks that we've been fundraising, we are almost at $2,500, which is 30% of our goal. So we're almost there. We're almost there and we just have to keep the donations going and, and we're very grateful for all the support that we've gotten so far. In any case, if there's anything that comes up in the next few weeks and in the next few months, which I'm pretty sure it will, you can follow us in our social media, Yaquera underscore VE, as in the first two letters of Venezuela. And there you can follow all of the work we're doing, the update status on our fundraiser campaign and what are the next steps for the platform. Excellent. Yeah, you heard him. If um, if you guys want to help, which I highly recommend that you do, because like I said, a little goes a long way, especially in Venezuela. I will provide links to the, uh, the introductory video that they just uh, put up on YouTube not too long ago to their article on Medium. There's an interview that Raul did with his school newspaper that you can read if you want to read a little bit more about uh, the inspiration behind all of the elements of this platform and, of course, to their social media pages. With that, Aaron, Raul, Daniel, again, I want to commend you guys for a fascinating opportunity that you have given the country to help Venezuelans rediscover that financial autonomy that is so desperately needed. And I... 
I really hope that this ends up becoming successful once this regime is gone. Every day we inch closer to what may be the day after tomorrow. I think there's going to be a uh, the dawn of a new day in 2021. I really hope so. And I think platforms like Yakera are going to help us uh, become a country reborn. So guys, thank you so much for uh, for joining me today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Really appreciate you having us. Thank you so much, Rafael. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks again for tuning into the State of Venezuela podcast. I hope you enjoyed hearing the story of our country as much as I enjoyed sharing it. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming platform you use. I'd also be grateful if you could leave a review and share it with anyone who might be interested in learning more about Venezuela as well. Finally, if you have any thoughts on today's episode or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, drop a comment or send me an email at stateofvenezuela at gmail.com. Thanks again. See you all in the next one.